following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. I don't know how you came to church today. I know how I came to church today. And I am in need of good news. So we're singing today. I was reminded of a of a situation that happened this week that I think happens to us maybe spiritually. Uh, we were in a in a baseball game on Thursday night where we did not play our best, and uh, one of our players made an unusual error in the field. Um, as he came up to the plate, I noticed that his swing was off. He, he was swinging really big. He was trying to hit a ball out of the ballpark, and he just struck out. After the game was over, I pulled him aside and I said, uh, what's going on, man? He said, I don't know, man. Coach, after I made that error in the field, I just felt like I needed to do more. I said, well, your swing looked like it. This morning, you might come to church thinking that your week was filled with errors. And you came to church thinking you need to do more. And here's the good news, the glorious good news. That Jesus Christ has come and it is finished. And you don't have to do more. You coming to church this morning is not a moment where God looks at you and says, ah, that makes up for the mistakes that you did this week. Reading your Bible this morning, getting up out of bed, going to getting after it tomorrow morning is not a moment when you've got to do more. No, what this is, this is a response to it is finished. Church, don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. And the things we're going to talk about this morning are to be responses to a gracious, good, holy, merciful, loving God because of all that he has done for us and promised. Let's pray. Father, we are, we're so needy. Uh, we're more needy than we even know. Some of us feel our need this morning, and even that feeling of our need is minuscule compared to our true need. Lord, we we need to hear over and over again the good news of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is finished, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us in Christ. This morning we come as needy people dependent upon you to open the eyes of our hearts to the wonders of your word. Where you, the God of heaven, are speaking to us. So, Father, do do the work that only you can do. Empower the preaching and open the eyes of the hearts to see the wonderful things that you're going to teach us about you and how we should live in this world as we represent you. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 13. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, One thing I do want to say, I know it could get warm in here. We're still trying to figure out the temperature control. We have no control over the the AC units. Uh, There's work orders in and all these different things. It's just another reminder, just to be honest with you, this is not our home. So just be aware of that. Um, It's like being in a hotel that you can't control the AC on. You know what I mean? Um, My wife and I went to a hotel in, in Vancouver, British Columbia, for our honeymoon, and I walked in shockingly noticing there's no AC unit and I just panicked, but I was going to sweat all night long. Right. So, um, yeah, that's what it, I'd gotten nervous when I heard this morning, the AC is not working and I just went, Oh no, you know? So what I reminded myself of this morning is what do you have that you have not received? So fan yourself in gratitude. Okay. All right. You know, one of the first things that we saw in the book of Genesis is, the effect of sin on human relationships. In the Garden of Eden before sin, Adam and Eve lived joyfully in harmony with one another, and they lived the same way with God. But sin entered the world, and conflict came with it. And the very first portrait we get of Adam and Eve's family is Cain and Abel, the story of Cain killing his brother Abel Conflicts from that moment in Genesis 3 over small things, you name it, or over big things happen all the time because of what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. And all of us feel the ache of that in our hearts. We feel it every day. We, Some of you feel the conflict that you have with your children. Some of you feel the conflicts you have at work. You feel the, the conflict when you read about nations warring against other nations. It's just... It's part of the fabric of living in this world. Conflicts happen. But something else goes on in this world. It's it's a world that's filled with decisions. You know, whether to get up in the morning is a decision that you've got to make. What you're going to eat for breakfast is a decision you have to make. What college to attend? What job to take? Who do you marry? You know, big decisions like, you know, is it time for us to build a house now? Do we go buy a house? Do we buy a car? Do we move to a new town? Because this one seems like all the opportunities are shut off. And most of life's decisions don't fall into the category of, you know, wrong or right decisions. They usually fall underneath the categories of wise or unwise. You know, that that battleground of, I just wish that God's word would like in a blinking red light show up and say, thou shalt move to, and you got this place. And it doesn't work that way. You know, God didn't just tell us, like Abram, to get up and walk and go to this land. We don't have that happen very often in our lives. Well, this morning in Genesis 13, we're going to see both things. We're going to see how God's people react to conflict, and we're going to see how God's people trust God in their decisions. That's what we're going to see this morning. So here's the big idea that I hope we'll get to this morning, that I hope you'll see in the text. Uh, if you're new with us, the big idea is just kind of covering what is the main thought of the sermon that seems to be in the heart of the text. <clears throat> and here's the big idea. God's people are peacemakers who walk by faith, not by sight. God's people are peacemakers who walk by faith and not by sight. Now, Genesis 13 
is one of, is the first of a trilogy of stories wrapped around Abram, this forefather, this father of the faith, and his nephew Lot. Every story that we're going to see has some really practical, godly advice for us. But what they really show us, to be honest with you, they show us the difference between those who live by faith. And what I mean by faith is those who trust God, lean into God, believe that God is the king of their lives, and those who trust their eyesight or their own intuition or their own wisdom and don't necessarily lean into the fact that God's their king. They live more like they're their king. What's interesting is both of these men are from the same family, which we're going to talk about, but they have differing perspectives on how they view life and how they make decisions about life. So that's what we're going to read this morning and we're going to study this morning. So stand with me. We're going to read Genesis 13. It's only 18 verses. If you can't stand that long, feel free to sit down. And we stand because this is the reading of God's word. We believe it's inspired and God breathed and And we want to stand as the people of old stood when God's word was read to them. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he made an altar at the first. And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with him, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Abram lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count, can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. May God bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Now let's look at our first point in your outline, which is on the bulletin that you received. And we're going to look at the first point, which is biblical peacemaking. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 9. Now last week, if you were with us, and if you weren't, this is just a little reminder about where we've been. Abram and Sarai journeyed to Egypt, where Abram, in a desire to save his neck, asked his wife to tell the Egyptians that she was actually his sister. Tell them a half-truth. And we noticed in that story that Abram's, what seemed to be Abram's lack of consulting God, put him in a tough spot. Well, we didn't notice what we see in our text that we just read this morning about the first thing Abram does when he returns from Egypt. Notice verses 3 and 4, that he returned to the original landing spot in the land of Canaan at Bethel, and he went to the altar that was there at the beginning that he built at first, and notice what he did. He called upon the name of the Lord. Now, this is a contrast of what we saw of Abram in Genesis chapter 12 as he was sojourning to Egypt. Now, after returning from the challenges that he faced in Egypt, where his wife was taken as part of the harem of Pharaoh, he returns back with his wife and all of his possessions, and now he returns to the original altar, and he calls upon the name of the Lord. And one of the things you're going to notice as you read the Bible, that I hope you pick up, you're going to notice that the authors of the Bible always give us little clues into the spiritual journey of our forefathers. You're going to notice something about them. They're not perfect. You're going to notice that they aren't always faithful people. But you will notice something about them. They're always growing. They're always spiritually moving forward. And Abram seems to have grown or been convicted or changed from his trip in Egypt. He returned to his homeland, to the altar that he had built before, and now he calls upon the name of the Lord. And as we're going to see, it's absolutely critical to the story of what happens in Genesis chapter 13. Because now as he returns back to his homeland, he's incredibly wealthy. Now, if you just pick up the story in Genesis 13 and you don't know the background, you're going to think to yourself, oh, God must make everybody wealthy like Abram. All of God's people are wealthy. Abram got wealthy, and that's all you've read. But you wouldn't understand how Abram actually got his wealth. He got it by some deceptive measures. He got it by by his wife being taken captive into Pharaoh's harem because he decided to give a half-truth. And so here is Abram returning back as a wealthy man. And the wealth that he receives is so much that it seems that even Lot, his nephew, has some of this as well. The amount of livestock that Pharaoh gave to them was so much, and the number of animals was too much that the land that they had could not hold them, could not contain them. So a conflict arose. It arose between Abram's ranch hands and Lot's ranch hands, and we're simply told in verse 6 that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And part of the reason that the land couldn't contain them is what we notice in verse 7, that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also dwelling in the land at this time. So here's what you have to talk in, in Oregon ranch land type terms. 
you have crowded public lands inhabited by enemy tribes. It's like Hatfields and McCoys in biblical terms on steroids. That's what this is like. And a conflict arose between Abram's guys and Lot's guys because of their great possessions. So you can assume some things. You can assume property lines are being fought over. You can assume property rights are being fought over. Who has what rights? You can assume that water and grazing rights are all being fought over. You can also assume something else. You can assume matters of the heart here, can't you? You can assume that greed, selfish ambition, covetousness are all at work in the hearts of these men. For Abram and even the original readers, they would have expected a conflict among the Canaanites and Perizzites with them. But the question really that lies over the text is, should family members be fighting like this? Should this be how God's people deal with matters like this? So what's the solution? How does this problem of overcrowding and the conflict between Abram and Lot, what's the solution for it? Well, notice Abram's response in verses 8 and 9. Abram appeals for peace. He doesn't want conflict between he and Lot anymore. Notice the reasoning. Because we're kinsmen, we're family. He even takes a strange step of offering Lot any piece of land that Lot wants. In other words, Lot, you take what you want. If you take the east, I'll take the west. If you take the west, I'll take the east. Now, just for a moment, process what's going on here. This is the land that God had promised to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And he's willing to let Lot choose whatever piece of land he wanted, and Abram would just adjust accordingly. And he did it because he wanted peace between himself and Lot. Because we're family. I want to draw some conclusions out before we go to the next point that I think are very important. Notice the desire for peace in Abram. He initiates it. He seeks it out. There is a, there's a calmness about Abram in this discussion. He's not angry. He's not like impatiently throwing up his hands. Look, man, fine. Just take whatever you want. It's not what's here. He's mature, he's measured, he's wise. Now, this would speak volumes to the original hearers of this story. Now, again, remember who these original hearers would be. As Moses is writing down their ancient history, this is the people of God who have been released from Egypt after 400 years of slavery. They're on a journey to their own promised land, and Moses is rewriting and retelling their story to them about what happened in their history. What they're hearing about their forefather, Abram, the father of the faith, is that God's people are peacemakers. Now think about that for a moment. This would have been incredibly challenging for them on this journey, because if you know anything about their wilderness wanderings, you know they were anything but peaceful. 
They bickered and fought with one another a lot. They complained to the God of heaven who delivered them from Egypt by miracle after miracle. They complained because they wanted water, they wanted food, and they were upset that God was not going to meet them to such a degree they were willing to go back into Egypt just to get those pots of meat once again. They complained about Moses' leadership. They, they didn't treat each other very well. And the story, as Moses is reading it to them by the campfire, would just basically tell them, listen, this is not how God's people are to act. God's people are peacemakers. God does not like disunity and disharmony among his people. I mean, can't you hear in the backdrop of this, Jesus' words, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. Friends, peacemaking has been modeled to you and I and even to Abram and his people by God. We as humans created a conflict with God because of our sins and rebellion against him. But God, but God, in his mercy and his grace, initiated peace with us by pursuing us and sending his son Jesus to rescue us from our sins and live a righteous life and the righteous life that you and I can't and we haven't and we won't. Therefore, if God initiated peace with us and we are children of God by belief in Christ, what does that make us? It makes us ambassadors of reconciliation. It makes us biblical peacemakers. As Paul would say in the book of Romans, if at all possible with you, live at peace with everyone. And just let that settle in your soul for a moment as you think about, and probably what's going on in your mind right now is the Lord is showing you a litany of relationships that you just allowed to be broken. But then also I want you to notice, though, the priority of peacemaking in God's family. It is evident from the text that Abram's heart and burden for peace with Lot is because we're kinsmen. Notice something in the text. We don't see any part of the text where Abram pursues peace with the Canaanites. Nor does he pursue peace with the Prezites. Or any other parasite in the land, right? I mean, you know, you get the list of the Zites, and I just kind of mentioned you know, that the parasites. I mean, that just, you know, kind of like, sounds bad. Don't, everybody don't. You can say I'm not respecting all humans. Okay, just, you know, everybody bear with us. It was funny. It was a joke. We can go there. Okay? But notice, notice his commitment is specifically to his family. Here's what this tells us. This tells us that biblical peacemaking among God's family is to be a priority in our lives as God's people. John 17 is one of the greatest texts in the Bible because it is a moment when you and I get to be a fly on the wall and listen to Jesus pray to God. And when you get a moment to listen to Jesus' prayers, we should pay close attention. 
And notice how Jesus prays for us, his people. He talks about in the prayer, I pray not for just these that are near me, but for those who believe because of their word. You know who that is? That's us. And notice how he prays for us. He prays that we would be one, like God the Father and the Son are one, so that the world may know that God sent the Son and the world may know the eternal love of God. Do you see in Jesus' prayer, I mean, again, this is where Jesus is pouring out his heart to his Father. These are the burdens upon his heart about what is happening in this world and for his people. Do you see the priority of Jesus and the priority of God for unity and oneness among his people? See, when God's people walk in unity and harmony and they prioritize peacemaking among one another, it speaks to the world that God sent Jesus. And it speaks to the world about the eternal love of God found in Christ. You know why? Because peacemaking is so unusual. And it takes a power that is supernatural. Friends, look around your world right now and ask yourself a question. Of all the people in the world right now who should be peacemakers, it should be Christians. Because everywhere you look, you can't read something today without seeing division and conflict everywhere. And yet in the middle of that division and conflict, you have sitting the church of Jesus Christ. And if the church of Jesus Christ believes that it's our job to create more conflict, we're just simply fighting with the weapons of the world. But if the people of God say, actually, in the middle of this chaotic world, there's going to be one place on earth that we know there's going to be peace, and it's right here. Because we're going to prioritize it. Why do we prioritize it? Because God prioritized it. So you understand, don't you, that only the love of God and love for God can make this type of peacemaking a priority. Sin, conflict, disunity are the natural things that happen from the sinful stuff of the world. But God demonstrates his love for us and his passion for unity and peace by sending his son Jesus for us and then fills us with the spirit of the risen Christ so that we might be pursuers of peace with one another when there's a conflict. So is there somebody in your life that you need to write down on your notes today that you need to make peace with? You need to attempt to go to them and say, hey, listen, I, I've sinned against you. Or can we talk over that thing that happened between us last week? I'm, I'm burdened about that. Is there a brother or sister in Christ that you need to attempt to just reconcile with? To just sit down with them and have a conversation. Maybe you need some help. And if you do, listen, we would love to help you with that. Because, friends, listen, that's what God's people do. God's people initiate it. 
We go after it. We don't let it fester. Abram was a biblical peacemaker. Don't miss that. Let's go to the next point, which is walking by faith and not by sight. Let me do something real quick. I want to, I want to pray for us. Let's pray. Father, you, you have been so kind to us through the years to be a church of peace. Yeah, we've had challenges, but you've allowed us at times to make reconciliation and attempt reconciliation. And I pray that we would be a church that does this well. And as we grow, I pray you would protect us. And you would not only protect us, but you would make us so passionate about peacemaking that if we sniff it, that there's division or there's conflict, we would be willing to step in and say, hey, how can I help? Let's let's resolve this. Let's lay this under the blood of Christ and help us to do it well. And Lord, I pray that even down to our teenagers and to our kids. I pray for community groups. I pray for study groups. We need your help because conflict is at every turn. Help us make this a priority and continue to make it a priority for your glory and the advancement of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to the second point, which is walking by faith and not by sight. You're going to see this in verse 9 through 13. Now, Abram's passion for peace with Lot doesn't seem like a very good business deal. As we've noticed in verse 9, he offered Lot any land of his choosing. And Abram offers it with open hands, with no strings attached. It's You take this side, I'll take this side. You pick. <clears throat> we'll examine in a moment more why he seems to do this. But one reason I want you to notice is he does it to serve Lot. He wants his nephew blessed, and he doesn't want this conflict anymore. But let's just look for a moment at Lot's decision. Let's just examine it. Notice some descriptors in the text that are fascinating. Verse 10 says, he saw the Jordan Valley was well watered like the garden of the Lord, which is interesting. It's a reference back to the garden of Eden and like the land of Egypt, which Abraham had just been into. And the original readers would go, oh, yeah, Egypt is fertile. It's a great place. Don't miss the parentheses, though. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And then verse 11, Lot chose the Jordan Valley and he journeyed east. Doesn't sound like a big deal. Unless you've lived on the east coast, it's really crowded. Right? I mean, okay, it's just a whole other thing. All right. Verse 13, the men of Sodom were great and wicked sinners against the Lord. Now just examine the decision. He sees the land's fertile. Well watered, it's like a paradise on earth. But it's got some bad people in it. It looks good to him. Seems like the best spot for his family and livestock. Well worth the risk. Doesn't seem like a bad idea. But there's a few things in his choice that we can't ignore. The reference to the Garden of Eden and Egypt is actually a callback a reminiscing back on poor decisions made in those places. Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, Eve saw the fruit was good to the eyes. Well-pleasing to her. 
And she ate and gave it to her husband, Adam. And in Genesis 12 that we noticed last week, Abram, without consulting the Lord, went to the fertile land of Egypt for food. Both situations would have taught the original hearers something very important and something we should learn. Our eyes can deceive us when we don't consult the Lord. When you make decisions based on what your eyes tell you, the results can be disastrous. And by eyes, I don't just mean our physical eyes. I mean our emotional feeling eyes, right? Now contrast Lot's decision with Abram's offer. I just contrast the two men and notice some differences here. Abram's offer was made with Lot's best interest in mind. Lot's decision was also made with Lot's best interest in mind. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's no reference to Abram in his decision. Abram's offer was made after calling on the name of the Lord. On the other hand, Lot's decision doesn't seem to reference God at all. Abram's offer was made knowing he could lose the best land. I mean, think about this. Abram knows I, I could lose the be- I could lose the best. His trust was in God's provision, not what looked good to his eyesight. Lot decided to take the best land, clinging selfishly to his possessions and greedily wanting more. A.P. Ross put it like this. <clears throat> Lot, walking by sight, chose on the basis of what appealed to him. His choice was selfish, self-seeking, and self-gratifying. Abram, on the other hand, was walking by faith, and he generously allowed Lot to choose first. He was unselfish and benevolent because he trusted the promises of God. He had learned that it was not by his own plan or power that he would come into his possession, not by jealously guarding what he thought was his. God would give it to him, even if he gave it away a hundred times. Abram was waiting for God to give it, but Lot simply took it for himself. Listen to this statement. Better that God gives it than that an individual takes it. Let's just consider some things for a moment about these decisions. Friends, our eyesight can deceive us. What looks good, what feels good, what seems right, what looks profitable can actually harm us. That's one lesson. Now just think about all the decisions you're making right now in your own lives. Things that we make where it's easy to be deceived. A new job with a new position. A a college you want to attend. A move that seems beneficial. These can all be misleading. And there's some indicators in the text, aren't there, that Lot should have thought of the land way differently. Now, some of you who live in the country, and that's all you grew up in your life, you see the word cities, and you go, see there, that's the problem, right? That's not necessarily the problem, right? I mean, right? I mean, I grew up in the city, right? I mean... You know, I, I was a concrete dweller till I moved to Roseburg, right? I, when I moved to Roseburg, I felt like Mayberry. Like, what in the world did I move to? Like, where's Andy Griffith, you know? And 
Barney with the one bullet. I mean, I want to see that guy. You know what I mean? Right? But there, there are other indicators besides it was the city. It was well watered. It was fertile. But it was filled with evil. We're going to see this in the upcoming chapters. I mean, you know the rest of the story. You're going to know it's incredibly dangerous. God was not happy with what was in that place. What looked good to Lot, listen to this carefully, proved to be the costliest decision of his life. We read later that because of this decision, he loses his wife. Friends, we must not allow our eyesight to deceive us. What's beneficial to our pocketbooks may not be helpful to our souls. What's good educationally may not be best for us spiritually. What looks like an amazing opportunity may not be amazing for us relationally or for our family. There should be some other criteria other than what looks good or what feels good, which leads us to the second thing I think we should learn in this text is the value of calling upon the name of the Lord. Again, I mean, the resolve of Abram for peace with Lot and his mature approach to the entire scene is unusual in today's greedy, covetous culture. Get all you can and spend it while you got it doesn't seem to fit with Abram's open-handed approach to peacemaking and his possessions. But Abram could do this because Abram knew the God who owns every acre of every land on earth. Peacemaking in this situation was temporarily costly to Abram, but in the end, as we're going to see, he didn't miss anything. It's a reminder of what Jesus says in Luke 6 about the unusual work of Christians in peacemaking. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Can you feel this moment with Abram? There's strife. I don't want there to be strife. Just take what. You, just take it. Go. And pick what you want. He could do that because, friends, calling upon the name of the Lord is placing our trust and our confidence in God's authority over all things, and it allows us to be open-handed with others and open-handed with our possessions. But it does something else as well. It gives us unusual wisdom in hard decisions. Several years ago, I was asking the Lord to give me some direction on a ministry opportunity that arose. I was asked to take over an international youth ministry to travel the world, write their curriculum, and just be that guy. I was 21 years old. And I asked a friend of mine, I said, how do I pray about this? He said, Dave, I'm convinced of this 
The more challenging and difficult the decision, the more clear the word from God. And if God doesn't speak, you stay right where you were. And God will always meet you. Now, I wasn't 21, I was 23 at the time. Six months later, when I declined that opportunity, was my first trip to the state of Oregon. I think my wife and my children are glad that I'm here. The clearer and the more challenging the call and direction, the more challenging the direction that you need, the clearer God will make it to you. Calling upon the name of the Lord will give you wisdom in these moments. It'll help you lay out some principles rather than what looks good to your eyes. That's a good lead in to our last point, which is the promise of God to his people. We'll see this in verses 14 through 18. Now, this is the reason why Abram could be so open-handed with the land. Abram knew that God would provide for his every need. As Lot headed eastward, God told Abram, don't even worry about it. Let him go. He says to him, as far as your eye can see, north, south, east, west, I'm going to give you the land. He, He repeats to him the promise of Genesis chapter 12. And notice, we're just one chapter later, so you gotta, this is a repeating moment. However, this time God adds something to it. He says, listen, your family is going to be so vast, nobody can number it. I mean, if anybody could pick up the dust and number it, they could, but nobody can do that. And then he tells Abram something interesting. He says, go walk about. Soak it in. Soak it in. It's interesting that in the text, you're going to notice some some dynamics. You're going to notice that God told Abram to lift up his eyes. Now you contrast this with earlier, Lot also lifted up his eyes. The difference is Lot lifted his eyes up selfishly. God is telling Abram, you lift up your eyes and you see all that I promised you. Made me wonder when I'm reading the text, and the way the language is, it's unclear, but it's made me wonder if Abram was wondering, man, did I make the right call here? Did I do the right thing? Did I let the best land go? Was he discouraged when he looked around the land he now had, and it's not nearly as fertile, not as much water? But God doesn't let Abram live there hardly at all for a moment. Rather, God says to him, Abram, lift up your eyes. And then God reminds Abram of the promise he spoke to him previously. And then he says to him, Abram, lift up your eyes. Soak it in. Soak it in. And do this. Take a walk. Why take a walk? Just soak it in, Abram. Remember what I have said. Be mindful of all that I've done, all that I promised, and all that I will do. Now, friends, to the original hearers of this, these words would have struck a chord with them. They were Abram's offspring. On their way to the very land that God had promised to Abram, 
That very land that Abram walked through, marveling that God has promised all of this to us. And on their journey, they cried out for food and water. They needed help in overcoming enemies of every kind. And this word to Abram is God saying to them, there's nothing to fear. All of this is yours. God would provide. And what did they experience on this road to their promised land? God gave them daily bread, daily bread after daily bread. And he dropped it out of the heavens. He provided rock for them, and in, I mean, water from them in impossible places. And he overcame every enemy on their path, even though they were outnumbered. God will provide for his people. And so you, you may wonder the same thing. You may wrestle with the same idea. If you don't take that job, if you don't take that golden opportunity, if you don't make that move, God won't meet you. God won't provide. You've got to take matters into your own hands. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're a little stingy with your possessions and you think, I could never give the offer that Abram did. There's just too much at stake. But friends, these words to Abram, they should lift up your soul from your stingy, greedy hands and open them wide. God has promised to take care of his people. And you know how we know that to be true? Because God promised to meet the greatest need that you and I have ever had. He promised to reconcile us to himself and forgive us of our sin. You know that's your greatest need. Your greatest need is not breathing right now. Your greatest need is to be reconciled to God and to be forgiven of your sin. Your greatest need is that God would provide a way so that you could be made right with him, have a happy relationship with him, and that your sin could be forgiven. And if God provides for our greatest need, like forgiveness and reconciliation with him, why would that God not meet your daily needs like milk and bread? Paul put it like this, and don't miss these words. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, church, is this, this is just too good. God gave up his son for us. Jesus died for our forgiveness of sin so that we could be right with God. God met our greatest need. And because God met our greatest need, God will graciously with Christ Provide for every need we have. In other words, if you are in Christ, you're one of God's children, God will provide for you. What good news that is. Open wide your stingy little hands. Isn't that good news? But flipping four, Paul seems to be more convinced. And my God, my God, he will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I mean, listen, church, listen, for a moment, just walk about in your heart with this. I mean, walk about with, ponder this, marvel this truth. Let it resonate over and over again. 
our God, your God, because of Christ, will meet your needs, listen, according to the eternal, infinite riches that are found in Christ Jesus. What an amazing truth. Now, you know how important that is for you right now. In the world that we live in right now. Abram, knowing and believing in the God of all provision, allowed him to offer Lot any land he wanted. Wow. He wasn't stingy because he knew his God wasn't stingy. How about you? How about you? Friends, can I say something to you that I know from experience? Peacemaking is costly. It's costly. But do you trust in the God who can replace the cost? Reconciling that business deal might be complicated and expensive. Being able to forgive a debt of a brother or sister against you is costly. But what does the wisdom of God tell you to do? (laughs) And do you trust in the God of all provision? Abram, doing what was best for Lot, temporarily allowed him to lose the best land. Are you willing to give up what seems temporarily best for what is eternally impossible to take from you? Jesus warned us of this, didn't he, in Matthew 16? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, Abram could be a biblical peacemaker because he knew and trusted in the God of all peace and the God of all provision. Do you? Do you? Now, there's one last thing in the text that I want you to notice that we can't miss. Is I want you to notice where the text begins and where it ends. In verse 4, we find Abram at the altar of the Lord. Then you got the story of this conflict and resolution. And then in verse 18, you find Abram where? At the altar of the Lord. Friends, what you and I need to realize is that the only way to live this way that we've just talked about, the only way to live by to be true godlike peacemakers and to be open-handed with our possessions is that we are devote, devoted to and worshiping the Lord of glory, that he is indeed our king. At the altar of the Lord, Abram was given the wisdom and the calmness to deal with Lot. Abram's heart was humbled before the Lord, and that's why he could do what he did in this text. A.P. Ross put it like this. The chapter closes the way it began, with Abram's building an altar to the Lord. From beginning to end in this story, Abram was a man of devotion to the Lord. As a worshiper 
He could respond correctly to strife. As a worshiper, he could wait patiently for the Lord to fulfill his promise. Friends, our challenge with peacemaking and provision is not is not hard to notice. It is actually a worship issue. If, like Lot, we worship ourselves and our stuff, we'll make decisions that, while not they may not be sinful, they are eternally unwise. On the other hand, if, like Abram, we worship the one true God, and we see our stuff that we have as gifts and provisions from his hand, we'll make God-glorifying, peace-filled decisions and others-oriented decisions. There's a question how. How is your heart postured before the Lord? Is your king leading your peacemaking and your possessions? See, the good thing, the good thing in this story is like Abram before us, our God is calling us to just lift up our eyes and see all that he's done. Soak it in. Soak it in. Take a walk. Marvel at God's promise. And as we marvel at God's promise, what does that allow us to do? It allows us to be open-handed, to be peacemakers, to not put our trust in the temporal things of this earth, but to put our trust in the living God and actually then begin to represent our God who is the greatest peacemaker of all time. Let's pray. Now, as we're praying this morning, just want to give you a moment to respond to your king. This morning, I, as I said earlier, just I want you, as the Lord is bringing to mind those that you need to pursue for peace. I just want to encourage you to write those names down. And decide before the day is up to either... Get some wisdom on how to go about it or go about it. Maybe this morning the Lord has stirred you that you are seeing that your possessions are your king, not Christ, who is the king of your possessions. Maybe this morning you have felt like, I I can't forgive that person because that's the only thing I have to hold on to anymore. This morning the Lord is calling you, at least on one level, in your heart, to forgive that person as God in Christ has forgiven you. Maybe you know you've sinned against someone and you need to go to them and ask them to forgive you. And take the risk of what that may cost your reputation. Maybe this morning you're making decisions and you're looking for decisions on things. And because it's been quiet from the Lord, you've taken that as the go sign. Maybe this morning the Lord had just said, actually, silence means hold off and be patient. Maybe this morning in your decisions, you just need to go to the Lord and say, Father, forgive me for not consulting you and not believing that you would answer.
The book of James says that when we ask God for wisdom, he will give it to us liberally and without reproach when we ask it in faith. Father, you are the God of peace and provision. Forgive us where we have not submitted ourselves to King Jesus and lived as our king would want us to in these areas. Forgive us for withholding peace, withholding reconciliation, pursuing reconciliation when we need to. And then, Father, empower us by your spirit to go change that. And thank you for your help and your word where you show us how to do this. And thank you for brothers and sisters who are wiser than us that can help us. And thank you as well, Lord, that you are the one, according to the book of Deuteronomy, who gives us the ability to make wealth or income. There's not one thing we have in this earth that has not been given to us. Our breath is a gift. Our heartbeat is a gift. Our money is a gift. And although we might have worked hard, you have made and gave us the ability to make wealth or to make money or to have a home or to have furniture or a car. Forgive us where we have closed our hands to these things, not believing in your promise to be the eternal God who will meet all of our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Help us to be open-handed with our possessions and our decisions as we lay them before you and direct us as you see fit because we are we are yours, we're not ours. And where you want us placed, we want to be there. Thank you. Thank you for being the God who owns everything. Thank you for being the God who pursued us in peace. And thank you that there's nothing we have to pay you anymore. The debt has been paid. Our sins are forgiven. We have no condemnation before you anymore. And you have gladly given us from the provision of heaven. May we as your people represent you well in this earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.